This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're very pleased to have Robert Kolker on the show today to talk about his important new book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Bob Kolker, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. It's great to be talking with you. You've written several important books, including Lost Girls, about an American serial killer, which I understand is going to be made into a Netflix film. Congratulations on that. Uh, what was it that attracted you to the very complex story of the Galvin family? Um, well, I, I, my career really took shape at New York Magazine, where I wrote long reported feature stories for more than 15 years. And um, while it was a general interest magazine that had cover stories about celebrities and about uh, politicians and newsmakers, I started to get typecast as the the feature writer who would go and talk to ordinary people. And most of the time it was when ordinary people were going through something extraordinary, something difficult, and perhaps even tragic. And the idea here wasn't to be a rubbernecker or, or to revel in someone else's misfortune. It was to try to get at uh, the heart of how people transcend trauma or get through difficult situations. And also maybe get at a larger social issue that's at play at the heart of the drama. So with Lost Girls, this was a, a, an unsolved serial killer story. And in that sense, it was a true crime story. But it also was a sociological story about a new era where prostitution had moved on to the internet and, uh, and away from the streets. And uh, that allowed a whole new class of people to suddenly be motivated to, to get into sex work and how those people were every bit as in danger as, as they might have been if they were on the street. So uh, on one level, it was about that, but also it was about people and about uh, people bobbing up and down on the poverty line and, and, and struggling and seeing how much more money they could make if they even part-time uh, became a sex worker. And so I, I wrote about those people and I wrote about their families. And it was writing about their families where I think the book kind of hit its stride because it was five different families of five different victims. And each of those families had its share of dysfunction and, and internal strife and drama, but also of um, great normalcy and tenderness and love and, and you know, success. And so I, I was determined to write complex and sensitive portraits of those families at the same time that I was talking about the bigger social issue. This new book, Hidden Valley Road, does something similar in that it examines and it a family that is, has been through so much misfortune, it's hard to imagine that they still remain a family. Uh, there, is, there is sexual abuse and there is mental illness and there is um, a murder-suicide. There is lots of police activity. But at the same time, it's a, it's a portrait of a, a glowing, promising family.
family filled with privilege and and many successes as well. And it's about uh, people growing up and transcending their trauma and finding a way to remain part of a family. Um, and then there's that bigger issue bubbling up in the background, which is schizophrenia. Six of the 12 children in the Galvin family were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And um, this was a an amazing chance for medical researchers to try to get to the heart of the matter with regard to the genetics of the disease. We know that there's some genetic element to schizophrenia, but it's very, very hard to trace. This family seemed to be the perfect Petri dish to find out more about that. So as usual, I found myself going down two different tracks, the the human story and then and then alongside that a, a scientific story or a or a, a more intellectual story. Well, let's get into that story. Uh, give us the setting. Who were the Galvins? When did their story take place? And why did they choose to have such an unusually large family? Uh, this is a this is a uniquely you could say a uniquely American story. The, the twelve children in the Galvin family span the baby boom. The oldest child, Donald, was born in 1945, and the youngest one, Mary, was born in 1965. And uh, they grew up during this amazing period of promise and optimism uh, in the middle of the American century. The father, Don, was a military man. He was a World War II veteran who went on to become one of the first faculty members at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And among the faculty there, he was something of a celebrity because he was the one who uh, first suggested that the Falcon be the United States Air Force's mascot. And he was a falconer himself and flew hawks and falcons at the football games during halftime. Uh, so everyone knew him, but in particular, they knew his family because he was the father of 12 children. Uh, not a very typical thing even back then. And his wife, Mimi, was uh, a very uh, well-educated and cultured woman who had been uh, brought up in New York City, just like Don had. But the two of them now were in Colorado Springs, which was something of a backwater. And so she had a certain amount of um, social ambition and a certain amount of uh, cultural pride in, in her. Uh, she loved opera and she um, volunteered with the opera company to put on operas. But also, you know, she loved being the mother of 12 children and being known for that. Her recipes were published in the local newspaper. So you have a family that's really riding on all cylinders and achieving a certain level of notoriety and a couple that's really reveling in how they were a model family. And even decades later, when I interviewed Mimi, she told me, we were a model family and others used us as an example of how to live. Of course, that all comes crashing down in the late 60s. And when I first heard about what happened with this family, I could barely believe it. And I was also... Uh, thinking a lot about the book American Pastoral, the novel by Philip Roth about a glowing, shining, promising American family that kind of implodes in the late 60s and early 70s, just as America is having its own moment of, of uncertainty and strangeness. And in this case, it was like American Pastoral times 12. Instead of one child, you have 12 children and you have six of them with mental illness, and then you have others who are the victims of abuse. A lot going on behind the scenes that is perpetuated by denial and by shame. Um, 
Don and Mimi were not abusive parents, and they themselves were not uh, acutely mentally ill. Uh, there was no schizophrenia in their immediate families that they knew of. This whole thing seemed to come out of the blue like a plague, and the children experienced it like a plague. The, the ones who were not mentally ill would go to bed at night wondering if they would wake up being the next one to become mentally ill, because after three or four of them started to become diagnosed, it was anybody's guess where this was going or why it was happening. And uh, that from there springs the whole notion of, of the genetics and where it comes from. Back in the 60s, it wasn't even clear that it was genetic. It, there was a prevailing point of view that it had something to do with family dynamics and with bad mothering. So that was a, an added layer of complication that the family faced. Why was it important to the two sisters, to Margaret and Lindsay, to tell the story of this perfect American family? They were the first people I spoke with. They were the ones who came to me. This was about four years ago in early 2016. We have a mutual friend, the sisters and I, uh, an old editor of mine from New York Magazine named John Gluck, who went to high school with Lindsay. And he knew about the family over the years. But uh, in 2016, the sisters came to him and said, we've been thinking on and off over many years about the best way to let the world know about our family. And we realized that we can't write a memoir ourselves about it. It's too big. It's bigger than us. It's about our older brothers and and it takes place during years that we don't remember because we're the youngest. And then there's the scientific aspect of it, which is enormously complex and hard to get across. And you know, my friend John thought I'd be a good match for this material because of my ability to write about people in crisis and about complicated subjects in a narrative way. And so he put us in touch, but I have to tell you, in my first conversation with the sisters, not only was I in disbelief and rather sad that such a tragedy had happened to this family, I also was pretty convinced that it would be impossible to do. In, in America, there are medical privacy laws. Uh, the HIPAA Act, you, you can't uh, just write about somebody's private medical information without their permission. And this is a very large family. So I, I remember thinking to myself, even as the sisters were very excited to be able to let the world know about their family, that there had to be at least one brother or other relative out there who I would end up calling and they would say, what, a book? You've got to be kidding me. And they would try to put the brakes on it. And the last thing I wanted to do was to add to the family's uh, anguish by becoming this new you know, wild card in their lives. So I decided to take it very slowly and only gradually uh, after many, many weeks of getting on the phone with various family members and feeling them out, including Mimi, the mother who was still alive and in her early 90s, only after all of those conversations did I realize that everyone was really, uh, really um, on board for this. And I guess what, what I hadn't anticipated was that, um, first of all, a lot of time had passed. You know, there had been many decades since some of the worst things that happened to this family. And But secondly, more importantly, it was the two sisters who were the youngest in the family who really were on the receiving end of a lot of the more difficult moments in the family's experience. They, they, received, they, they were recipients of a lot of abuse, and they were neglected as uh, the family was concentrating on the problems of the mentally ill brothers. And so everyone else in the family sort of fell in line when the sisters decided there ought to be a book. They, they said, well... 
if the sisters want this, far be it from us to get in their way. And so they kind of deferred to them. And that kind of opened the door for me. Still, it took a year. It was a year after I I first talked to Lindsay and Margaret uh, when I sold the book proposal and got to work on the book full time. I really took my time with it because I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, that was very considerate of you because it's a complex and difficult subject. And it's it's really impressive that you got the family to open up to you as much as they did. Now, the the six mentally ill brothers or sons, that their behavior and their symptoms were all very different from one another. What's your understanding of why they were all diagnosed as schizophrenic? It's an interesting thing to note that they manifested the illness differently. And one of my biggest concerns early on, aside from the consent issue that I talked about, is that the book would just be a monster movie, that it would be about you know one son getting sick and then another and another and another, and that I wouldn't be able to ha- learn enough about the brothers to write about them as actual human beings. And what I quickly learned is that, that there was no reason to worry about that because not only were the surviving mentally ill brothers all individuals who were very different from one another and all quite charming in their way, but also um, uh, schizophrenia itself just is not a cookie-cutter condition. And in fact, it's it, you could barely call it a disease. It's really a syndrome or a collection of symptoms that are classified with the name schizophrenia. Um, when I say that, what I mean is, um, you know, there are some diseases that are actual things, physical things, like COVID-19, for instance, you could look at it under a microscope or, or understand it at a molecular level and say, yep, that's COVID-19. But schizophrenia isn't like that. It's a, it's a word we use to classify a lot of symptoms that we think are related to one another. And um, every few years, the, the profession reclassifies and rejiggers the definition. And, and so we, we try to fine tune it as time goes on. Um, but we don't know exactly what it is. And one day we may find that it's actually six different discrete conditions or four different conditions that we've been call, all been calling schizophrenia. But for now, it's our best, our best guess at, at treating the disease is to classify it all this way. So in that sense, it's very um, understandable that if six brothers in the same family all have this diagnosis, that they all actually have slightly different symptoms. One is more paranoid. One is more delusional. One has actual active hallucinations. One is more catatonic. Um, They they are different the same way that any brothers are different from one another. Their schizophrenia is different from one another. Psychiatry, as you uh, noted, has been very unkind to parents of mentally ill children, particularly to mothers. Uh, The idea of the schizophrenogenic mother was still popular in the Galvin's time. What was their experience with the mental health establishment like? Uh, They really were, the, the family was not seen as part of the solution. They were seen as the problem more often than not. And in particular, Mimi, the mother, was on the receiving end of criticism. Uh, she, was, she was the sort of mother who loomed large in the life of her family. She was very active, very on it, a disciplinarian, uh, very eager to manage everything about her children's lives. And in this sense, this put her right in the crosshairs of 
of psychoanalysts who believed that the schizophrenogenic mother was the culprit when it came to schizophrenia. Um, it, it really is a, it's unfortunate that this happened with her because we know now that, you know, bad mothering doesn't cause schizophrenia. It just doesn't. Um, but for decades, this was really the prevailing wisdom in the world of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Uh, some of the most prestigious clinicians and therapists in the country and the most influential ones understood schizophrenia to be something that your mother gave you, the same way that they sometimes thought that homosexuality was something that uh, was the mother's fault or autism was the mother's fault. It, the mothers really took it on the chin it, all through this this period in American history. And the doctors who eventually researched the Galvin family and found amazing genetic information from them, they all came up during this period and they all sort of called BS on it. You know, they, they, both the two big doctors who I, who are most involved in the family, they both went to medical school in the 1970s and they remember sitting there and hearing professors say to them, if a mother d doesn't stay at home full time to take care of their children, then the children could become mentally ill. And they, they, they both wondered, you know, where's the data for this? Like, why, this is all anecdotal. It, it makes no sense. And so, and so uh, uh, the story in this sense of the Galvin family and the story in Hidden Valley Road is a story of progress uh, away from some of the more uh, less justifiable ideas. In, in some quarters today, it's very popular to say, you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, and you write that the parents' style of denial and keeping secrets, keeping up appearances, was a critical aspect of the family's experience. Do you have reason to believe that things would have gone differently had they been more open and faced the stigma of mental illness head on? Yes, I absolutely believe that, but I don't think that necessarily is entirely the parents' fault. It's also that the stigma of the time was was so powerful that very very few families would not have lived in the shadows with this would not have denied this i mean certainly the parents were motivated to deny it was going on because their options beyond that wouldn't be much better and i'll 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 explain by telling the story of donald galvin or don junior uh the oldest of the 12 children uh his his big psychotic break, the one that sent him to the mental hospital for the first time, happened when he was 25 years old and had already become married. Um, that marriage ended as soon as he went to the hospital. Um, but you can tell from his medical file and from notes from, from his you know, college health services visits and interviews where he talked about his teenage years that, that he had been feeling the early signs of, of acute mental illness much, much earlier than that, perhaps as early as when he was 15 or even before that. So you have something like 10 years of undiagnosed mental illness going on. Um, when if the family had been living at a time when people were more sensitive and didn't give a stigma to mental illness, when perhaps he could have been treated and there could have been early intervention. And, and a lot of what's happening these days with schizophrenia really hinges on the idea of early intervention. That's 10 years of him having psychotic breaks. Once he ran into a bonfire during college, once he killed a cat, uh, another time he smashed 
a zillion dishes on the floor while washing dishes as a teenager at home. You know, moments that sometimes you could run right off as just eccentric behavior. But in retrospect, we see now as, I guess you'd call it pedromal uh, symptoms of, of mental illness. What if they had been caught earlier? So you have a family that's, that has this son, and they look at him, and the parents look at him, and it's the late, or mid to late 1960s, and they have a choice, right? They could decide that their son is severely mentally ill and needs attention, or they could hope that these are growing pains and that maybe he'll just grow out of it. Let's say for, for the time being that they decide that he really is sick and needs help. What are their choices? The Galvin's choices at this time had really two tracks they could go on. One is they could send him to a state mental hospital where they would prescribe uh, Donald a lot of Thorazine or other drugs like it, which are you know, psychoactive drugs that are um, really symptom suppressors. They, they make a patient much more manageable and they sometimes help them control hallucinations or delusions, but they also uh, basically stupefy a patient and, and make it difficult for them to really um, have any hope of, of a normal life after that, at least the way that the medication was administered back then. So that's a bad thing. And then the other bad thing that happens is that the father of the family, Don, has to return to his prestigious job uh, after, after the Air Force Academy. He became a counselor to governors in the Western United States and a lobbyist in Washington. And he wasn't able to, he, he would have to go to them and say, you know, the oldest of my 12 children is in a mental hospital. That would hurt his career and stigmatize him. The family only had one income. So if Don's career went off track, the whole family would suffer financially. And then the other 11 children would have to go to school and have to say, you know, my brother is in a mental hospital or hide that fact. And so there, the stigma would then affect them and make people look at the entire family differently and perhaps ruin the entire family's chance of having a normal life. So that entire track was really it seemed, you know, paved with nothing but despair and anguish and, and a bad outcome. Um, so it seemed like it makes sense the more I thought about it that this family would just want to hope for the best and hope he just grows out of it. Right. Well, when you look at it through that lens, when you pull the lens back and see the whole family and the society in a context, it is even more remarkable that in a time that uh, the psychiatric establishment thought the family was causative, that the family was never included in Donald's treatment. The family was never counseled about how to treat, how to care for their mentally ill son, or how to handle and deal with their healthy children. So what is your impression about how the healthy siblings maintain their mental health? Uh, your point's an excellent one. These days, apart from early intervention, the big watchword among um, the treatment, those who treat mental illness like this, is family support. But the big meeting for the Galvins with the doctors took place in the early 70s, where they sat around a table and the doctors gently explained that it was Mimi and Don that were the problem and their parenting style that was the problem, which was you know, erroneous and, and false. Um, but at the time was the prevailing wisdom. 
you know, these days people understand that families have to, have to be supported almost as much as the patients do so that they can help the patient with their uh, treatment of their mental illness. Well, um, as far back as the early 70s, uh, adoption studies, uh, Rosenthal and Ketty's work in Denmark, demonstrated the genetics of schizophrenia. Um, Gottesman and Shields also worked on it, and they saw that the genes for schizophrenia were activated by stress. That was their theory. Nevertheless, despite scientific evidence, even back then in the 70s, the emphasis on nurture persisted with professionals for a long time and in some places even today. How do you explain that? Um, back in the 60s, it, it was easy for someone who believed in family dynamics or believed in bad mothering as the cause to just sort of wave away studies like Gottesman and Shields's amazing work. Um, they could just say, well, I don't, you know, you, you may argue that based on a hypothesis, but if you're saying that it's genes activated by stress, I'm telling you that the stress is the main issue. And, um, and who cares about the genes? It's, it's, the, it's the stress that's causing the mental illness. And so the debate, the muddy, the waters just got muddier and muddier as time went on. Um, so with, as the years go on, suddenly by the late 70s, we have new imaging techniques and new ways to take a look at the human gene. We can do PET scans, we can, and, and at the brain for that matter. You know, we can do PET scans, we can do CAT scans, we can do MRIs. And then suddenly people started to find physical evidence of how brains are altered uh, when experiencing acute mental illness and schizophrenia. And so then you have people like E. Fuller Torrey coming in in the 1980s saying, this is a brain disease. This is not about bad mothering. The physical evidence is there. But still, there is a small cordon, you know, small, you know, track of, of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy that says, well, maybe that's the drugs that are doing that to them. Or maybe that's an effect of the illness, not a cause of the illness. Um, still, we, we think that there's something in the environment. This nature-nurture battle really continues as the years go on. Well, uh, to me, it re the, the resistance to accepting evidence reminded me of nothing as much as anti-vaxxers. No matter how many times there are studies and repeated studies about the fact that vaccines don't cause autism, there are those people and there are a large number of them who just refuse to accept it and refuse the vaccines, which might be another problem, but we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, I would completely agree with that. Absolutely. I would agree with that analogy completely, that, that there's tunnel vision um, in, in this area and in medicine in general, where people can be convinced of a of a reason, and then they try to form an argument or cherry pick evidence to prove their point. Right, and don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just it's just quite remarkable when you see it among professionals who are supposed to be more evidence based. But uh, but there it is. Um, so you learned in doing the research for this book and writing the book that mental illness clearly runs in families but not in a clear pattern like eye color or height. So 
tell us something about what you learned about the genetics of schizophrenia. Well, um, the, the idea that mental illness ran in families isn't new. It, it's hundreds of years old. Um, all, all people had to do was look at famous families, like royal families, and see that there seemed to be some sort of mental illness that was being passed down uh, through generations, you know, with the, the kings and queens of France and England. Um, and then the problem then becomes, you know, trying to actually trace a parent-to-child transmission. And that's where schizophrenia really trips people up because it is not a traditionally inherited disease. It is not something that parents typically pass on to their children. And it is not a recessive trait either. It's not like you need two people with schizophrenia to mate and then produce children with schizophrenia. It is a genetic vulnerability that sort of wanders and meanders through families and appears uh, where you least expect it, you know, with a nephew or with a niece or with a great niece. Um, but it's there. And so that's what's made it so tricky. And that's what's made schizophrenia susceptible to being interpreted as being something else. So um, even back in the days when uh, delusions and hallucinations were thought to be like satanic possession or, um, uh, you know, some sort of perversion, um, the, there was this idea that it might also be a physical illness or heredity. And then, you know, just to move things forward in time a little bit, then, then psychiatry is born. And at the dawn of the 20th century, it becomes a real profession with real classifications and trying to, to build a science around it to classify symptoms into illnesses. And you get people like uh, Carl Jung and, and really most psychiatrists at the turn of the century who believed that schizophrenia had to be some sort of physical illness, something going on in your brain. Um, and then you had people like Sigmund Freud who believed the opposite. Uh, he, he argued that this had to be something that you acquired in life, perhaps through bad parenting or through childhood trauma, some sort of, the same way that a neurotic person can look at their childhood as the cause of their neurosis. So could you look at a schizophrenia patient and say, this is about something that happened in their childhood too. Um, and this is the birth of the modern debate over schizophrenia and really everything that's happened in the last 120 years since that time has been about this debate between whether schizophrenia is something that happens to you when you're alive or something that you inherit when you're born. And the way that we have reconciled this argument in recent years is that we understand that now that schizophrenia is a genetic vulnerability. It's a, it's a, it's a developmental disease. It's not, a, it's not like there is a gene uh, that you inherit that says at the age of 21 and a half, you are going to have a, your first psychotic episode. It is more that you are inheriting a constellation of genes or a cocktail of genetic um, uh, mutations, I guess what the word, the word would be, that suggests that you are vulnerable to developing mental illness as your brain is developed over time. This is why most people develop acute mental illness you know, between the ages of 18 and 25 as, as your brain is, is just finishing up its development because that's when it becomes clear that there's something amiss. Up until then, you've been able to compensate for it. But, but once your brain's finished developing, there's no covering it up anymore. And someone like Donald Galvin starts to become more and more uh, disconnected from reality. Um, 
this vulnerability is an interesting question because then nurture comes back into it. Uh, the question becomes, could there be environmental stressors, as Gottesman had theorized way back in the 60s, environmental stressors that actually uh, make a genetically vulnerable person develop mental illness? What, a, what about a head injury? What about like a sports injury where you, where you have brain damage? Could that cause schizophrenia? What about uh, a trauma like being abused? Or what about a breakup with your girlfriend? Or what about an exciting stressor like leaving home and going to college for the first time? Could all of these things be things that trigger the vulnerability and make the disease become operational? These are open questions. And then, of course, that brings us to the whole conversation of drugs and marijuana, the, the raging debate happening now about whether or not um, uh, people with schizophrenia uh, are self-medicating and seek out things like marijuana and then end up using it a lot more or whether it's marijuana that actually is triggering the psychosis. Yes, that, that is a raging debate and nobody really knows the answer at this point. Uh, but you know, when you speak about the genetic side, there's also uh, the family dynamic side that when families have a chronically and severely physically ill child, especially if the illness is episodic, um, they manifest, that family has a certain dynamic that's, that's been documented. They're overprotective to the, to the uh, sick child. Usually the healthy children feel a certain neglect. There are things that happen that are undoubtedly exacerbated in the case of mental illness because because of the nature of mental illness and because nobody will think that the family caused CP or, or uh, MS in the family member by, by the family dynamics. Did you have an idea about how the family dynamics in the Galvin family may have exacerbated or ameliorated some of the symptoms? Um, I think it, it's very clear that the family was so invested in their own um, perfection that they weren't going to tolerate imperfection. And sometimes that meant, you know, bouncing quarters off the kids' beds to make sure that they made their beds right. And other times that meant uh, denying when things were, were less than perfect. Um, so I think denial was part of the family culture. And, and that's never good. And that, that might have existed independently of the schizophrenia, but the fact that schizophrenia hit this family only made life even worse in this regard. But if it were something else, it would have also been denied. You know, homosexuality would have been denied or, um, uh, you know, uh, someone, you know, one kid being a juvenile delinquent would have been denied. You know, they, they, they would have sort of glossed over it and decided, well, you know, we're still a good family. And so... Um, it just is, is this particular family's thing, as it was for a lot of families back then, this kind of denial. One of the darkest parts of your book describes uh, one of the sick sons, Jim's molestation and rape of his two youngest sisters. Talk to us about the complex emotions of incest and child sexual abuse in this family. Um, a deeply troubling aspect of the story for sure. Um, and I wasn't sure how best to write about it. The last thing I wanted to do was to suggest that schizophrenia 
uh, was a factor, was, was, was a cause of this particular brother's um, sexual abuse of his sisters. Um, there is no data to suggest that schizophrenia causes uh, pedophilia. Um, and, and I didn't want to imply that even for a second. Um, Thank however, you for saying that. Yeah. yeah. However, there's an air of secrecy in this family that sort of allows problems to fester, like a mushroom kind of growing in the dark. So if you have a son like Jim, who, even though the parents know that he's mentally ill, they um, just sort of hope for the best and let him get married and go off on, on his own without, you know, addressing any of his, you know, very obvious psychiatric issues. You know, and then if they let their daughters go and stay at Jim's house, because Jim hasn't been in the mental hospital for a while and appears to be, you know, doing okay, you know, then that's a problem and that's neglect. And that's, that's something that um, both Donna and Mimi should be on the hook for in a book like this. And it's something that their kids were pretty critical of them for. When I first talked with the sisters, what I heard was a lot of criticism of the mother in particular saying, there was a lot of denial in this family, and she made a lot of mistakes that put us in harm's way. Um, and you can see in the first half of the book that the book is a kind of hard on Mimi um, when it comes to this, because as children, they really, even if they're not mentally ill, they're suffering because the, the way that the family dealt with the mental illness was to make things worse for the kids who were well. And um, what I found, though, was that something interesting happened as the children grew up. And you see it in part two of this book. Um, many of them, in fact, I think all of them, start to see Mimi in particular with new eyes. They, they don't necessarily forgive her big mistakes or absolve her of guilt in terms of putting them in harm's way. But they start to have a broader perspective about all the challenges she had. And they start to see how limited her options were. And they start to see how basically nobody would have been prepared to handle this. And so it's hard to single her out um, for, for being as naive as she was. It's not as if there were other mothers on the same street or other fathers on the same street who were, were, knew so much about what was going on that they would have been able to handle it that much better. And so you... That to me is something that's very relatable. Like I don't have acute mental illness in my family, but I and my brother and my sister, you know, had opinions about our parents growing up that became uh, more nuanced and more broad-minded as we got older and became adults and had families of our own. And that's the story I tried to tell in Hidden Valley Road. You have two sisters, both who suffered terribly, both who worked really, really hard to transcend that trauma and then came to a new understanding about their mother and father by the end of the book, which I, I think is, um, to me, one of the more gratifying parts of the story. And, and speaking of that resilience, which really is remarkable in, in the two sisters, the, uh, the, the literature, psychological literature, uh, indicates that the presence of just one strongly supportive adult in a traumatic childhood, whether it's because of mental illness or drug abuse in the family or any other kinds of things, that the presence of that adult can make all the difference. So tell us about Nancy Gary. This is an amazing subplot of the book. One of the two sisters, Margaret, the older of the two, 
is essentially rescued from the family at a critical moment. And the family, uh, and, and uh, by family friends called the Gary, Sam and Nancy Gary. Um, Margaret comes to live with them as a teenager and goes to high school uh, at a boarding school where the Gary family pays tuition. They're a very wealthy family. And it's an extremely complicated moment for Margaret because in, in one hand, it's a miracle that she is able to not have to be in the house while uh, others are still in harm's way. But on the other hand, she feels somehow penalized, somehow banished from her family. Uh, and she grows up wondering why the mentally ill sons got to stay and she had to live somewhere else. It kind of sours her entire relationship with the family for many, many years. And then there's the whole question of the Garys themselves. Nancy Gary and her husband, Sam, enormously generous people. They take in lots of uh, kids over time. And uh, in a way, their generosity is completely uncomplicated because it's, it, it, there are no strings attached. They're just very nice people who are helping out people in the jam. But on the other hand, uh, it's very, very hard for uh, uh, an angry and disaffected teenage girl like Margaret to really trust the moment and really trust these people. You know, she understands that this isn't her family and she wonders why this is happening. And, and so it almost feels like something out of Charles Dickens where a mysterious benefactor has appeared out of nowhere to, to help you and you wonder what, what this all means and, and what it means for your family. Um, and, and both sisters end up having really uh, quite rewarding relationships with the Gary family over many, many years. And it is their salvation. As you said, it's nice that when there's one person who's really you know, there and to be a little bit of uh, a mainstay in your life when everything else is going wrong. But it, at the time, it, it was all very strange. And so I tried to get at the heart of that strangeness as telling the story. Yes. And, and what emerges from reading those pages is that the teenager couldn't ask what was troubling her and the adults had no idea that she was really feeling banished when what they were doing was embracing her. So it, it was uh, it, it was quite a moving part of the story. And God bless people like Nancy Gary. That's really something. Uh, Bob, you, you've given us a lot to think about, and uh, we're about to wind down. But before you go, are you ready to tell us what new project is percolating? Uh, I wish I was. I'm, I've been I've been very busy promoting this book, which has gotten a bigger reception than I ever could have imagined. I'm so happy that it's connecting with families, many of whom are writing me to tell me about their own stories with mental illness in their families. I'm so glad that it might be able to work against whatever stigma is still left with regard to schizophrenia. And so in the last five months since the book has come out, I've been on Zooms a lot you know, talking to a lot of people, book clubs and libraries and mental health organizations, booksellers, uh, book festivals, and um, podcasts, of course, like yours. It's, it's exciting to be able to have, you know, something that I really feel is important and useful to say. But I do think my next book will also be hopefully intimately reported about the emotional lives of people going through uh, circumstances that we all might be able to learn from. That's really the the thing I am looking for. 
and uh, I'm doing lots of research now as we speak about what the backdrop will be for all of that. Well, this is a very powerful and important book, and I thank you for writing it and for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Renee. It's a pleasure talking to you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.